Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 10. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking to Mr. Christopher Warnock. If you aren't familiar with Mr. Warnock, he's been a professional, traditional astrologer and astrological magician for about 20 years now. He practices traditional horary, natal, and electional astrology, and he specializes in astrological magic. He published and helped translate Picatrix, a key grimoire of astrological magic, and he's got a wide background in spiritual and esoteric fields, having been initiated as a Sufi and in Japanese Zen Buddhism. His website, renaissanceastrology.com, is a leading resource for traditional astrology and astrological magic, and Chris teaches courses in horary, natal, electional astrology, and astrological magic from that traditional perspective, and you can find all that on his website, renaissanceastrology.com. We are really honored and proud to be able to bring this material to our audience and to give Chris a platform. He is one of these guys that has put in decades of work and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into his practice, and he's definitely someone worth your time and worth listening to. He's got a lot of interesting insights and a lot of wisdom to share that he's gained through his practical experience. We talked about a lot of interesting topics, one of which was the synthesizing of the Eastern and Western traditions, and we focused on that a little bit because I thought it would be interesting since I don't think anyone has really talked to Chris about his experience in those traditions. There's definitely something to be said for filling the holes in the Western tradition, which has a broken lineage with the teachings and experience that can be found in the unbroken lineage of the Eastern esoteric schools. A lot of people like to keep the East and West very separate, and I could see that perspective, but there has been precedent that has been set in the ancient world, if you just look to how Greece, India, Egypt, Rome, Persia, Babylon, all had this cross-pollination going on for thousands of years, so it's really nothing new to be able to synthesize these different traditions. We also talked, obviously, about astrological magic, talismans, and Chris's new book on the fixed stars, which we are really excited to check out. One other thing I want to touch on before we go is that we do have a Patreon account. And the reason we're doing that is basically just to be able to cover the costs of doing the show. So if the podcast can pay for itself, I think that would be a great thing. We do have monthly web hosting fees, domain name fees... Um, and some other fees that if we can get that taken care of through the show, that would really be helpful. So if you are feeling generous and you think what we do is worthwhile and you like the show, then please become a patron and check out our Patreon thing. Okay, so without any further delay, here is the interview and we hope you enjoy it. Okay, here we are with Christopher Warnock from Renaissance Astrology. My name is Dominic, and with me is Janice. Janice, how are you? I am well, and very excited to have Chris. 
and I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is an awesome opportunity. Um, at the end of our, of our last episode, I had I had wrongly said that we were going to take a break from Platonism and move on to astrological magic, and then I, I realized just you know thumbing through the Picatrix that the author was a Platonist, or it seems like he was pretty deep in in that zone. So can you talk about maybe? Um, We'll just start at the beginning. What role does Platonism play? Yeah, I think that um, when we're talking about Picatrix, of course, we're talking about it was written probably about 1000 AD in um, Andalusia in Moorish Spain. And so, you know, the author, he says he consulted 200 other books. So he's basically doing a compilation. And if you look at that Islamic civilization in the Middle Ages, they have an incredible, you know, they've, they've gotten all the wisdom of the previous civilizations. Um, and so obviously the platonic thought was very important that my focus tends to be more on, it's funny. Cause I was saying, I feel a little bad. I, it's almost like operating systems. I'm kind of on a Buddhist operating system now. So I was like rebooting into the, but I am more of a Renaissance Neoplatonist as far as the stuff I look at. And then hermetic particularly, there's a lot of overlap between the Neoplatonic and hermetic, um, approaches. So you know, when we look at Platonism or basically Neoplatonic thought, I mean, it's Plotinus, Hermetic, you know, Hermes Trismegistus, the Corpus Hermeticum, what they have in common is this idea of the one, you know, and that's really what's where the astrological magic comes in because if everything comes from the one, right, everything remains connected. And so that allows for these magical, these chains of magical sympathy and correspondence. The wise man then is able to go in and find the occult virtues, the, the hidden powers of things. And then that's how you do your magic. And so, for example, the, the sun, you want to do sun magic. So the sun is, you know, in Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy, you've got the three worlds. You've got the divine world, the celestial world, and the material world. So the celestial world is this possible potential interface that we can use to click into these chains. So you want to do the sun. So the sun would be good for become, like being a king or being well-known, like a, like a celebrity. So you can make a talisman. And go out and get solar things. So you get a rooster, which is ruled by the sun, gold, which is ruled by the sun, yellow things ruled by the sun, saffron. All those have solar spirits, so to speak, in them. You could assemble them and then do a solar ceremony, do a magic invocation at an astrologically appropriate time. But you can see how if it's come from the one and the connections are there, right, that you can kind of pull those all together and get the power from it. So that's one application of, of Neoplatonic. I mean, you could spend endless hours and you know your lifetimes figuring that stuff out now for me i'm a practitioner so the key with the philosophy is how does this inform my practice and of course at the same time once you do the practice you learn more about the philosophy so there's always to me this interchange back and forth and that to me it's no good being armchair but you want to jump in and actually make use of it and so i'd say that's probably the but that's very much like Taoism too you know the Taoist, the Tao is like the one and that's why the Taoist stuff is very magical. I mean, the actual, because everyone loves the Tao Te Ching, but doesn't like the, the, the magic stuff, but that's in, inextricably linked. Same thing happened with Hermeticism. I mean, you've got this whole fascination with academics with the Corpus Hermeticum, and then they reject astrology, alchemy, and magic, which are the hermetic arts. But we don't do that now. I mean, the, the, the current people that are studying this are open to the spiritual side of things. In fact, that's why they're doing it, but they want to practice. You know, and that's what drove me to astrological magic was like, I want to do this. You know, I read Picatrix and I'm like, this is awesome. I want to do Picatrix talismans. How do I do that? 
But the cool thing about Picatrix is it contains so much philosophy. So rather than like a grimoire, like a Solomonic grimoire that's just recipes, Picatrix has recipes, but it's also got a tremendous amount of information about how the stuff actually works. And so that's one of the fascinations of it. But you're entirely correct that the Platonic thought, and so, for example, the Platonic ideas, that's an interesting thing to think about, is that there's this idea, oh, it's this, they're somewhere else. And I'm like, no, they're right here. You know, it's like fatherhood. Fatherhood doesn't exist anywhere else. Fatherhood is a relationship between fathers and sons. And that's inherent. Anytime you have the sexes, right? Once you have gender, right? Then you're going to have fathers and mothers and the, everything that goes along with gender. So that the first one-celled creature that decided instead of fissioning that was going to take some of its material and stick it into another one or receive it, right? It started gender. Everything followed from that. It was all pre-existing, right? It's inevitable. And it pre another way the, with that is I'll talk about a savanna. So you have this African savanna and it has a certain amount of sunshine and nutrients and light and everything. So all the potential is built into it. So you've got potential for a million tons of biomass, you know, in terms of vegetation, about 100,000 tons of herbivore and 1,000 tons of carnivore. Built in right from the get-go. Before there's even anything there, this whole potential web of life is in existence. And that's like what the platonic ideas are. They're the spiritual relationships to underlie material reality. And again, that's what we're working with directly when we're starting to do uh, astrological magic or any kind of magic for that matter. So in knowing that, it's very useful in terms of guiding your practice. Because um, that's what I want to do. I don't want to write a thesis about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not an academic. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm practical. I'm actually wanting to put it into practice. And that's what I think a lot of people are excited about now. They're like, I don't want to write a paper about this. I want to do it. I want to make a talisman. I want to see what the effect is. It seems like astrological magic is really gaining a lot of popularity. But I want to, I, we jumped ahead a little bit because we had talked so much before I even hit the record button. I want to take a step back for a second and just maybe talk about how you got into astrology. And then I'd like to maybe move forward and get a little deeper into what we're talking about. It's funny because my wife is like, it's sort of like there's like an um, after school special you know, version of how I became an astrologer, which is like, it's sort of like the archetype. It's actually truer maybe than the reality. The reality is so much messier with stuff. But, you know, I became a spiritual seeker when I first moved to Washington, D.C., sort of spontaneously. And I was looking at a lot of stuff like Zen and all these other things. I was kind of, seeker goes around and t- it's, like a t- it's like a buffet. You taste a lot of stuff. And so I looked at astrology and um, Modern astrology, it was what I kind of looked at, like Dane Rudyard and, you know, Green and stuff like that. And it seemed really interesting, but the more I tried to get some detail out of it, it was like fog, it would disappear. You could never get any real concrete, you know, it was all sort of like vague. And so then I stumbled on a traditional horary. And so that's what I started with. And I, Lee Lehman was my teacher and I went through her course. And then electional is kind of the sister of horary, because if it's a yes answer, it would be a good election. You know, if you think of like, well, should I buy the house? And it's got all the significators are set up so that it would be a good time to, you know, yes answer for that. Then that would also be a good time to, to choose to do it. So, and for astrological magic, you have to do elections. So that was kind of my role there, but it really was part of my whole spiritual thing. And I just, I had a friend say I fell down a rabbit hole and that's exact. I'm still falling down that hole ever since. And um, what's cool about astrology is that if you do these predictions over and over again. If you make these talismans, you get these effects, then you recognize that this idea that there is no meaning to the universe, nothing exists except matter and energy is false. You actually have a personal um, uh, experience that, that there's real problems with that particular worldview. And um, 
that's, I think, one of the most useful things about astrology is that what it reveals about reality, which is that, in fact, this Neoplatonic hermetic view is a is an acceptable worldview. It works. It's a good model. Not the only one, but it's a good model. Well, and it's funny because before we started recording, we were talking about how there's a lot of modern astrologers who treat astrology as though it's a hard science and they tend to maybe sometimes ignore um, the more magical worldview that really astrology lives in. Well, and, I mean, we all swim in the, in the modern worldview, which is atheistic materialistic nihilism, basically. So that's saying that, okay, there, there's an objective reality out there and you can know it and it's the same for everybody. And um, it's just matter and energy. Nothing exists except matter and energy. And they're the same, equal MC squared. And also life is meaningless. There is no point to anything other than what humans conventionally want to, if, and if you, you know, up is down, if you want to change it around, there's no, that's very postmodern. You can change it around. And, um, and that's reality. And if you don't follow that, you're insane. You're, you're, it's irrational. It's, it's basically insane. And if you push Literally. it too far, yeah, you really, you are insane. And so, and worldview is not something you can objectively, you can't argue someone out of the worldview because if the evidence doesn't fit, you throw away the evidence. I mean, if, if an angel shows up, well, that's a hallucination. It's a, it's, it's a hologram. I mean, well, and the, they have a whole scout beliefs, like they have a whole um, scaffolding that they build around, around that off of it. So if you go to undermine it, you're even, you could even create psychological imbalance for a lot of people because their entire system of values their means of relating to the world are all predicated on this reductionistic inversion, which is truly a fallacy. But that fallacy is almost like a spell cast upon them in order to keep them um, in chain to the material reality and uh, spiritually asleep, in my opinion. Yeah, I would, I would agree. What I would say is this is that any worldview is a model. It's a mapping. Because no reality can never be encompassed in any particular worldview. But some of them are better than others. I mean, like I said, if I've got, you know, a really detailed, like, geographic survey map that I'm using, that's probably going to be better than the sort of, like, someone wrote it on a napkin for me. You know what I mean? And that's what I feel like about the, the modern worldview. There's so many holes in it. They have to kind of be blind. I mean, it works for certain things. Like, if you want to know, is water going to boil? It'll freeze at zero Celsius and boil at 100. That's perfectly correct, Right. But if you start telling me that love is just pheromones, right, and that there is no consciousness, which is what you hear from neuro, neurology, neurosciences, I'm like, you guys are out of your mind. You know, that goes against my base, most basic experience. And um, so it's just, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm flexible about, I wouldn't insist that my view is the only view because I recognize that that's coming from the fact, if you look at your chart, that, that's, who, that's who you are. That's, that's the influences that have come and produced you. And so you're going to see things from that perspective. Um, so, but that's not, that, here's what I would say is that there's no one right answer, but there's also lots of wrong ones. So then you got to find in the middle there, you got to get into that middle range of, well, that's a more or less truthful, you know, and that's the Zen thing too. We'll get to that eventually is that when you speak, you cannot tell the truth hundred percent. You can be more or less truthful. You can be closer or pointing or not, but you can never be 100% truthful with speech because it's, it's, it's limited. Mm -hmm. so. Well, and that's it. That's kind of, I think, what, what they allude, allude to when they call Mercurius a trickster or uh, the Lord of Deceit. I don't see him as 
I don't see the God as being deceitful at all, to be honest with you. But I think the nature of language inevitably um, conceals as much of, as it reveals and obscures as much as it makes clear. Yes. I mean, I, I'm very mercurial. I have Mercury and Aquarius rising. So, um, and it's neither one nor the other. That's my favorite thing. I want to have my cake and eat it too all the time. I don't want to be one. I mean, I always want to be in that intermediate state. You know, Hermes Trismegistus is, I've got his picture up on my altar, on my planetary altar. So I totally agree with you. And he's, you know, that's language. I think you're, I think you're hundred percent correct about that. Slippery. I think he actually does like to be devious. There's a, there's festivals of his where people go around stealing stuff is in honor of the God. So, you know, that's, there's a thievery and a deceit that is mercurial. Um, so. But I think it's kind of like the trickster mythology you see in the world where the thievery leads to something good in a way that was unpre- unpredicted. And, and it kind of makes me think of, not to segue too much, but it makes me think of Kukai where he was like, not this, not that, not not this, not not that, uh, neither both nor not both. You know, you know that statement mm-hmm. where Kobodaishi is talking about mm-hmm. suchness? It just, that to me is kind of very much about that mercurial sort of the way the mercurial or brute Buddhistic mindset liberates you from duality. Yeah, I I think that I would, yeah. I mean, Mercury is within, he's kind of within his his cultural context. So I think, but yeah, I mean, the Buddhist stuff, and we can talk about that later. It's like, I have this, for somebody who's Mr. Traditional, it's weird how I end up synthesizing stuff. So it's sort of like, I try to do that when I, when I mastered it as much as possible. So that's what I would say. But no, I, I mean, the Kukai is, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that you know about that. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, this is what's cool about, you know, um, the modern, you know, ability to be a- to ac- access so much stuff, you know, and that the fact that I got, I, we, this is the last question, but you know, I got to go to Koyasan and I've had the, you know, both the Jukai and the Ketchin Kanjo in Shingon, even though I haven't done a lot with it, you know, it was really amazing to have those experiences. Yeah, and, I want to uh, we'll get to that eventually. Because that, that, that's on my bucket list for sure. Um, and Janice and I, we've been, um, we've been interested in Shingon for quite a few years now. And I, I'm actually lucky enough to have two temples fairly close to me. So Oh, good. Yeah, and do you have a, a jar, do you have acharyas there? So there there are like priests that you can go. Yeah, yeah, no, Seattle oh, and Portland both have. Yeah, of course it's Seattle and Portland. Yeah, yeah exactly. the, the coast, the, the the cult epicenter of the of the US. <laughs> exactly, but so let's let's backtrack a little bit. Um, so we're talking about worldviews, and you're well known for being um, the Renaissance uh, into the Renaissance astrology. Obviously, um, how did you end up in in the Renaissance? Um, when you could have stayed in uh, the medieval era with with the astrology well, or the Hellenistic, we're going to look at schools of astrology, you know, and that's the thing because each of these is a different. It's a, a school has its own distinctive thought and techniques and sort of cohesive. You know, you can kind of obviously at the edges it gets fuzzy, but you know you can look at that and say, yeah, this is this is a, a particular way of thinking about things. So I think the schools that are in a, that are currently available right now, if you want to actually be part of modern is huge. I mean, 99% of astrologers are in modern astrology, which is, you know, basically revived about, you know, the end of the, about 1900, very psychological, mostly natal and fits in with the new age stuff. They have essentially a, 
all this stuff on top of a modern worldview. So they've kind of plastered the, the astrology on top of a modern worldview. So that's, there's some problems with that. Traditional, what I call traditional, that's a little controversial sometimes as a term, but it's just basically shorthand for European astrology of the medieval Renaissance and early modern period. So basically like say 1100 to, to 1700, that astrology has a lot of, it's very similar in terms of the techniques and certainly the philosophy is the same. So medieval and Renaissance, there's really not a big difference between them, except that Renaissance is a lot more simplified. There's a process when you go, the Arabic astrology of the 9th and 10th centuries is really the is traditional astrology. I mean, if you look at William Lilly in the back of Christian astrology, 1647, like every single book he cites as a source is Arabic. And so that astrology, and that was this incredibly brilliant synthesis of Hellenistic, uh, Vedic, and Persian astrology. And they started doing things like, rather than sign to sign aspects, right, aspects by degree, you know, and applying and separating and collection of light and translation of light and pushing virtue and all this incredibly complex technique. And what, what happened is when that moved to medieval, they dropped a little bit of it. And then when it went to, from medieval to Renaissance, they dropped more of it. But there's still a, a coherent body of it that this, that's the same. So um, the Renaissance drew me because I love Renaissance culture. And because, you know, for example, if you look at Marsilio Ficino and the Medici and that Hermetic Revival, it had an incredible effect on Renaissance culture. And so while the astrology was certainly part of medieval culture, the Renaissance Revival of Hermeticism really had, was incredible. And that's kind of what we're having now. We've had, it, you know, we waited, you know, 400, 500 years and we're back to it again. And so Renaissance astrology is, you know, there's not a whole, now what did start to happen in, this, in the 17th century is they started saying, hey, we need to get rid of all the Arabic accretions to this and go back to the pure Ptolemaic astrology, which is basically you'd have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, traditional astrology is Arabic astrology. You can't, you can't get, you can't do it. And they didn't have Hellenistic sources to work with. So basically that was a little, but they started modernizing stuff. And they started getting into more of a natural magic, you know, rays and things like that as far as their explanation of it. But like, for example, Lily started doing a more simplified triplicity rulership system, things like that. And I used the Dorothean. So in fact, if there's a conflict between the medieval and the Renaissance, I tend to go with the medieval term of style of it. But nevertheless, my sort of predecessors are Lily, Culpepper, you know, Ramsey, you know, Wharton, those guys, because it's in English. You can read it. You know, it's really awesome. The English Civil War, they stopped having censorship and there was this explosion of publishing and all this stuff got published. And um, so now we have, the, we have the benefit of it. We can read it in English. And, um, and, and also Lily was such an important, I mean, if you look at Olivia Barclay in the 80s who revived the traditional horror astrology, that's a, I'm in the part of that lineage. I'm like a grandchild of, of Olivia Barclay's and her lineage. And um, so that's really cool too. So that's why, the Renaissance, but also the art and the culture and everything was why I probably labeled it Renaissance astrology um, when, I, when I started doing my thing. Um, but those are the real, now Hellenistic see, like Chris Brennan, oh my God. I mean, you know, he's done an incredible job of really of making um, uh, Hellenistic astrology accessible. And he's sort of following on from the Schmitz, who are the ones who really championed it. But they didn't practice it as much. Whereas Chris is actually going in and using, you know, he's actually got a practice that extensively uses Hellenistic. So I think that's awesome too. I'd love to have people that have done all this Hellenistic stuff because it's like a different language, you know? It's like, it's like you know, if you only had French available, not Spanish, it would be kind of a loss. And it's really nice to see that people are using this technique and working within it. Um, and, he's so got, he's got a, and he's got a fairly influential voice in the uh, 
astrological community too, which is great. Yeah, he he goes to a lot of conferences and is very well known and has his podcast, which is it's ama- it's good. I mean, I think it's really fantastic because you know I thought one of the great things about his book is he said, "Oh, it's, the title it has fate in it," and I was like, "Yes," you know, he was willing to say, "I'm going to go with that tradition and be honest about it." despite the fact it's not going to be popular. Because one of the things I get I get from customers, from other astrologers is like, well, can I just get whatever I want? I mean, that's the point of it, right? You know, and, you know, I get a, I get a no and a hurry. Well, can't you change it for me? And can you give me a talisman? Can I ask again at a different time? I don't like that answer. You know, or my natal chart, I don't, oh, can I change it around, basically? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I mean, it's like the acorn that doesn't want to be an oak. I want to be a pine tree. I mean, mm-hmm. acorn might want to be a pine tree. It's like your chart is you, you know, and there's going to be parts. It's like the shadow. I mean, you, but it's interesting. I do this mage reading and people that come to me for that, they have the most incredible, you know, charts because they're into magic or astrology or whatever. And yet they'll always have huge deficits as well as having great strengths. They'll have these big conflicts. But if you don't have that, you don't have the energy. You don't have the, you're just boring. You know, you're not going to be someone who's going to be a, a great mage or is going to be a, astrologer or a good astrologer or whatever. I think you really need it, particularly mage. You need to have that conflict in your chart. You need to have the shadow, you know, or you're not going to be doing oh, it. Well, that's good to hear because I have a lot of conflict in my chart. Well, then great. You're probably, you, got the, you got the great potential. It's my so modern what, side. <laughs> what about uh, natal re- remediation as far as um, your opinion, uh, as far as talismans go? What, what's your opinion on remediating only- those deficiencies? The only true way to escape your karma, and that's what your chart is, is to not be yourself. And the only way to do that is to wake up. So, you know, that's, it's no self, anatta, which nobody wants to hear that. I mm-hmm. thought I'd throw that in there just, just for the 1% of people that are, are going to be open to that. But in terms of your working with your chart, a couple things. First of all, natal chart is for your whole life, right? So it's true when you're, when you're, just born and when you're 90 years old. So obviously there's some flexibility built into it. It's going to give you broader trends if you're just looking at the overall chart. So that's useful. And you, like, for example, I have Mars to the second opposite to my Mercury. So what that means is that in a negative way, I tend to be very rough in terms of my conversation, you know, my interactions with people. It's too, I'm too aggressive and, um, you know, get into fights and things like that. And on the other hand, I'm amazing in debate. You know, get up in front of the Iowa Supreme Court and seven justices firing questions at me, and it's boom. I love it. And so, so I can express it in either a negative or positive way, but I'm never going to be a wallflower. So that's the fate there, is that there's no way I'm going to suddenly turn into this, oh, I'm afraid, and you know, I'm slinking <laughs> around like that. I mean, unless it's like huge trauma, but you see what I'm saying? So there is flexibility there, but you're not going to be able to remake your chart entirely. Nor would you want, then you would, that's you, you know, it's, that's it. It's sort of like, that's who you are. That's your job. That's your Dharma. You know, it's laid out in the chart. What's your fun, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. It's right there. That's what your job description is. You know, you, you embody to do this stuff. And, um, you know, this, this modern view of like, I have a right to have, I need, I should be rich and famous and have a great relationship and kids and be totally healthy and do whatever I want. And if I don't, I'm getting ripped off. You know, we, we have this illusion that that's somehow our right. And it's like, maybe it won't work out for you. I mean, my family stuff, for example, is incredibly screwed up in my chart and it's incredibly screwed up in my life. You know, it's just like I was, I was adopted. Right. And so I have 
rule of the fourth is in the 12th. So that's like secret enemies are absent and that's it. And I found my birth family and they were the same way. Two strikes on that one. I have, you know, don't have, get along with my adoptive family, have no contact with them and no contact with the birth family either. You know, it's for some people that would be a disaster, but I'm like, well, that's just, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't have kids either. No family, no kids. So for a lot of people that would just be like, they would just be completely freaked. I'm like, well, well you know, that's, I have other stuff and I have amazing friends. I have this incredible stuff that I do. So you don't get the whole package nor do you necessarily get what the ego self wants. In fact, it's better for the ego self not to get what it wants all the time. It would be well, the nature of being you. a magician, to a genuine one to some degree is being an outsider. I mean, it's part of, it's classically part of the role of the medicine person or magician or, um, you know, shaman or sorcerer is there to a certain degree, they stand outside of these traditional um, societal structures. Yeah. The only thing is that a lot of times for people, it's a pose. Oh, absolutely. It's like wearing black and, you know, and all this stuff. I'm so dangerous and look at me on Snapchat, you know, whatever, Instagram and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, but to really be outside the mainstream, you know what I mean? To, to, you know what I'm saying? That's a little bit different. Most people don't. And it isn't very pleasant a lot of times to have to be out that and you way. Don't, that. And you don't want to use that as an excuse to get out of social situations where you, you may need to work on some things. Rather, people might think, well, I can escape this now because I'm, I'm the outsider. And there's probably some value in actually delving into the, the issues that you have and actually improving on them, right? I, I think there's a lot of realm for, here's the key is I used to say, well, the first step is to have some clarity. That's it. That's all you got to do. You know, if you, when you look at your chart, your natal chart, and you start to have some understanding of the basic underlying forces of your personality, then it, it is almost magical the way the stuff starts. I mean, like I had, again, big anger problems. I could never do anything about it, like in terms of doing something. So, but by having Kensho experiences, by having awakening and by having a lot of meditation and spiritual and focus on it, it's been lifted from me. So I can't say that I, ego self, did it, right? But nevertheless, as that ego starts to fade out, it's like washing something again and again and again and the color starts to run out of it, right? But that's not I'm do I had somebody say to me, well, I, you know, um, anger, I'm going to really work hard on it. I'm like, that's not going to work. You know, it's like you can up to a point, you need some discipline sometimes, but really to deeply deal with these problems, you can't, you have to stop being you. And again, that's not a very, you know, no, I want self-improvement, like a chart surgery. That's what I want. You know, someone to just, you know, so that's, that's a whole different issue. We can talk about that in the, in the Zen context. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing about it is also it tells me it's so funny too, because people email me and they say, I want this, 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 and this. I'm like, well, I don't know if you can, it's going to work with a talisman. Like, you know, I, I'd much rather have not have the sale than have a dissatisfied customer. And I'll say, look, I have no idea what's going to happen for you. Don't buy it. If you think, if you want a specific result, do not buy it, or at least be aware that it's not, you may not get it, you know? And um, the beauty of the astrological talismans that I do, because I'm very focused on archangelic magic. That's just, I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. There's nothing wrong with doing all this other stuff. It's just, that's what I do, is that there's not a lot of blowback usually. I mean, you may not get what you want, but you don't usually have blowback. So that's kind of the trade-off with it. Whereas maybe some of the other demonic stuff that people are doing, they 
you know, I think demons will mess with you too. But, you know, you like, it's sort of like you make a deal, like you give them certain stuff and they give you that stuff. You can get that. Then you have to have them, them restrained into a circle and you got to wear your stuff and, you know, do the right. If you do the invocation wrong and they escape and all this shit happens to you, you know, that dark angelic stuff, you don't, I don't do magical circles because you don't need to, it's like a saint. You don't like St. Joseph have to constrain him into a section and then keep him there, but you can't tell him what to do either. Usually you can ask. If you want to ask him for something, you, that's why I like, that's what I analogize this stuff to as saints. And again, it's not the only way to do it. It's just, that's what I happen to do. Yeah. And, and um, a lot of the Solomonic, Solomonic magic seems to be really making a big comeback. And in, in that, obviously you are commanding entities to do what you would like and to kind of uh, improve your, your state. Um, whereas what you're talking about, you're, you're asking. So that's, I yeah. see a big difference there. I'm more of a celestial priest. That's what I would say. And, well, and so, it kind of ties into what you're talking about, no self, because in the in the higher sort of theurgic magic, it's not all about you and your will. Whereas with the sort of goetic stuff, you know, it's a lot of it. These people do it just because it gives them a sense of self-importance. I I totally agree with you. But again, it's like. You know, to quote Jim Morrison, quoting somebody else, you know, some are to Blake is, you know, some are born to the, you know, sweet delight and some are born to endless night. It's like, you need to find your path, you know, and no path is illegitimate. Very you know? true. But, just, but if I thank God, I'm not called to be a vessel of wrath. Most of the time, sometimes I am. So I get to do that occasionally. But, you know, for the most part, what I get to do is, and what I've spent my not a astrological stuff doing is basically being an advocate for justice and, and particularly for mercy, you know, and that's, that's what I'm made to do. But, you know, that's not to say that the prosecutor or the cop is, is not necessary and important or the thief, we got to have thieves, you know, all that stuff. It's all part of the mix, but, um, you know, it's, um, but that's what I like about, you know, that's what's saying the Celestia and I'm drawn to the Vedic stuff because that, you know, if you will go to, to India, you know, you can go to a temple of Jupiter, you know, in the Japanese stuff, they already have a lot of the astral magic is a big part, not a big part, but a significant part of, say, like the, the Mikyo, the esoteric Buddhism, like Shingon and Tendai. You know, they have a lot of, they're big on like the North Star, like it comes from the Taoist stuff. On Miyodo, I don't know if you've heard of Abi no Seme. Do you know who Abi no Seme is? The, the famous magician. Yeah, if you look behind he's me. Jap- he's the Japanese Merlin. Yeah, if you look behind me, let's see if, it's, if you can see the thing. Okay, it's in my own, see if I can point my thing up here. Oh yeah, it's it's right. Where is it? I guess I'm like, oh well. Anyhow, I have a I have a um, kamidana with Abinoseme is one of the ufuda in it from his shrine in Kyoto. Oh, that's cool. Oh, so that's cool. That's so awesome. And it's interesting in Japan because the talismanic stuff, and I would assume it's the same in China. Um, it's just it's just a part of everyday life. Like we um, last time I was in Japan, we went to a, a temple and they have talismans for sale oh yeah here actually i realized what the deal is hold on a second that's why you couldn't see the door was shut so you see right right up there okay that's my that's my kamidana got it and so it's 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 perfect because it has to be up it has to be facing south and i've got the sakai though they're plastic ones which japanese people use but the the ofuda right over here on the side the middle ofuda is a nari you know with a you know the foxes right right before so that was my main and then i have one from the kamo shrine and so um you know, it's, my stuff is, it's like I said, super syncretistic, you know, it's like all this, um, you know, all this stuff mixed in, but you know, the, what I, I really like the Japanese approach, for example, like I go to church, 
right? I started going to Lutheran church. And like, so I'm like simultaneously Christian, Sufi, Buddhist, astrological magic, which in Japan, they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, you can mix and match as much as you want. It's like, you have to be one. You can't be anything else. You got to be one. And I'm like, so luckily the the Lutherans are liberal enough that they let me get away with that stuff. I'm not too obvious about it, but you know, it's just one of those things of like, it's, you're allowed to, you know, that's, that's what I am naturally drawn to is a much more mixed practice in the Japanese. Like you're talking about the talismans. It's like, yeah, I mean, they have the, the, the two, there's different variations of it. What you can buy are called omamori. And those are usually in these little brocade pouches, but I've got some cool ones. There's this, um, uh, when I, when I went to Japan, I, I've stopped going regularly, but when I went there, I used to go to a place in, in Tokyo called Kanda and there's a big shrine there called the Kanda Myojin shrine. And they, cause it's near, um, uh, uh, Akihabara, which has got all the electronic stuff. They sell electronic talismans for your computer. So you can buy this like, you know, special talisman that protects your computer and electronic stuff. Oh yeah. So, they have talismans for everything. I mean, it's yeah, exactly it's amazing for, for like uh, kids going back to school or going into college. There's talismans for that. And I, I picked up a Kitsune, uh, you know, good fortune money talisman. Yeah. It's really interesting. And that's kind of the the approach that I, you can see I'm wearing a Samui. So like I I you know um, I do like the Japanese stuff a lot. You know, it's one of the regrets of my life is I'm never going to learn Japanese. It's just not gonna. I just don't have the. It's it's funny how like you know this. Uh, Ficino says of a melancholic temperament, which I have, is that it's hard to learn stuff, but once you learn it, you don't forget it. So the Japanese, I just couldn't. I tried for a while, and I just was not able to pick it up quickly enough with the effort. I'm supposed if I had to live there, I could, but it's just one of those things. I think that's the key is just being immersed in it. Cause I have trouble myself, you know, being married to a Japanese woman, having kids that are fluent. I still have not picked it up as much as I would like. And I think I would just have to be immersed in it. You know, I can, I was going to say, I can, I got to a point where I could get off the plane, get on the subway, ride around on the subway, check into a hotel Go to go out to eat stuff like that. As long as you didn't get off this narrow script, because it could get myself in right. trouble quickly. Right. But, you know, so, back to uh, Renaissance talismans. Why not? We can range around on everything. Yeah, yeah, we can. I would love to just continue. Get us back. Get us back to the Renaissance, definitely. And then we'll come back to this because I do want to talk about the Shingon stuff. Um, so, as far as talismans and elections from the Renaissance perspective, what are the most essential um, elements that need to be considered uh, technically? If you look at Picatrix, there's a lot of recipes. So a lot of times what you're going to be looking at is if you've got a specific thing, it'll have a specific recipe set out for you and it'll set forth those factors. So um, at the same time, that's within the context of for someone who already knows Renaissance, you know, already knows astrology anyway. So they're going to not tell you stuff. They're going to assume things like, for example, you know, if they're saying, well, make it at the planetary hour of Saturn, you're pretty much assuming that it's not afflicted. You know, you don't want to make Saturn, well, Saturn's in detriment or something like that. But they don't necessarily tell you that because they just assume you know that. It's sort of automatic. This is a little, it's Picatrix is very advanced. I mean, the expectation is you know traditional astrology really well. Um, I have developed what I call my standard recipe for a variety of things based on, mostly based on Picatrix and also to a certain extent based on practicality. And one of those issues, for example, is you asked about the moon. People almost always ask me right off the bat, well, what about the moon waxing or waning? I'm like, that's 
one of the most obvious things and probably the first thing that, that magic has done. And if you look at the Greek magical papyri, they have moon phase stuff in it already. Um, and also what um, astrologic magicians who are not astrologers will use is planetary hours. So those are probably the two most common things to do before you do full chart elections. But if you're doing a full chart election, like say Jupiter, right? So what you're going to do is you're trying to make a talisman when the influence of Jupiter is the strongest. Okay. So, so for example, you say Jupiter rising or culminating. Those are the points in the chart when you're going to be the strongest in terms of your angularity. That Jupiter would be well dignified in essential dignity. So for example, in sign or exaltation, you know, or multiple lesser dignities, that's possible. Um, and then also the planetary hour um, and, um, and then not afflicted. So those are bit, then the, what about the moon though? So I've kind of taken a compromised position, which is that if you require the moon to be say waxing or waning, and usually it's waxing, I mean, waxing doesn't mean good and waning bad. Waxing generally means increase and waning decrease, but it's actually more complicated than that. I've got some stuff from Picatrix that's got some listings of stuff. Like for example, for wisdom, you do waning. To get payback for debts, you do waning. Um, but if you do, if the moon has to be waxing for a Jupiter talisman, that means half the year you can't make Jupiter talismans. So right there, you've knocked yourself out from a, and it's not even about the Jupiter, you know? So that, from a practical standpoint, makes it extremely difficult if you're going to insist on moon waxing and waning in every election. So what I do is I sort of compromise and said, okay, moon not afflicted, because the moon is important. So that's like not in detriment, fall, combust, and making applying, you know, negative aspects, basically. Um, applying and separating are very important. Separating is no big deal. You don't have to worry about separating aspects. You're fine. It's the applying aspects you need to be concerned about in terms of malefics. So, um, so and then like planetary hour versus day, the, 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 the planetary hour is more precise, so it's more focused, so it's more powerful. That's basically a shorthand with that. Anything that's the shorter something lasts, often the more powerful it is. Now, you think of waning, that's for a whole month. I mean, a whole half a month. How powerful, how precise and focused could that be when it's the entire half a month? Whereas if you're talking about Within, uh, you know, conjunct the ascendant, that's like probably about, you know, an hour, half an hour. That's a much more focused and much more precise election. So that's much. That's what we're looking for is these precise moments when something's most powerful. And when you get all these things aligned, it's like the, all the like the the uh, gambling, you know, like on the slot machine when all the things line up. Boom! That's when you hit the jackpot. So that's let's say Jupiter, Jupiter and Sagittarius. We're going to get in December, for example, Jupiter Sagittarius rising hour unafflicted moon unafflicted boom you know those are great talismans you know that's a really powerful election but nevertheless there's a lot of stuff in picatrix or three weeks of cult philosophy other sources that are specific so you if you have a specific recipe you go with that except you do bring in the like not afflicted and things like that. so it's a little bit of a you know but one thing i was going to say is that nothing's always true like when we get to the malefics that was a fun. I really thought that was a. You want to jump to that question about malefics? Yeah, or we yeah, have other stuff. Because we're almost okay. there. Because you asked about malefics and you said, okay, the question was working with malefics in general. And I said, well, you never do anything in general, it's always in particular. And malefics are a good example. So the Liber Fructus, which is the 100 aphorisms attributed to Ptolemy, says, in the election of days and hour, the two unfortunates, the malefics, are very useful. And you must use them as a physician uses poison skillfully for the cure of man. So there's always a good, the, you know, the good, you know, and who are the true malefics is another question too. It's like, isn't it Venus and Jupiter? I mean, Venus gets us into over excess and pleasure, you know, like sex and things like that. And, and Jupiter's overindulgence and parting and everything like that. So who, and whereas Saturn is the great teacher, you know, 
So who's the malefic and who's the benefic? Um, and also with malefics, it's interesting. There's always a use for some problem, like combustion. Um, Bonatti talks about if you want to do something in secret, do it when the planet is going, is going away from combustion. Because that way it's leaving combustion, it's lessening, but it's hidden. Or retrograde. Retrograde is really useful if you want to get something back. You know, so that's um, everything has its use. And there's, and you, you definitely don't want to be getting into this good, bad dichotomy. You know, um, it's like, like, you know, I get that a lot. Like I said, um, with, um, with the waxing and waning, well, waning's good. No, waning means increase. Now, if you have a, you're trying to get like, if you have an 18th mansion, which is to get rid of stomach ailments, you don't want to do that on a, on a waxing moon. You want to do that on a waning moon. You know, or like fixed stars. I also like the things I do waxing and waning or an actual moon talisman. Yeah, it needs to be waxed. It probably needs to be waxing if you want an increased one. Um, Manches the moon and then also fixed stars because you use the moon to reach. They're so far away that you need to have an intermediary and use the moon to contact them. So for those fixed star elections, I do look at waxing and waning. But like algal, it's a protection talisman. Well, waning, that's that would be reasonable because you're getting rid of things. So always the particularity, you know, or, or another example of that is people say, what does the moon in the first house mean? I said, nothing. Depends on the context. Is it a horary chart? Is it a natal chart? A mundane chart? You know, what, what are we looking at? What, you know, what specifically are we asking about? And only in context does anything have any meaning. So that's a really, really important root thing is that you can never have these abstract view of things. And astrology, it's a language to map reality. It's an incredibly kind of, uh, grandiose project in a sense that the idea you could you could complete have a complete accurate map of reality and that's really what astrology is about so that tells us that we can only have meaning and and accuracy in particulars not in generality okay and as far as working with the alleged malefics saturn and, and mars it's kind of dignified okay because yeah I, I i'm gun shy i know we're in kind of the saturn season right now there's a lot of Good. It seems like there's a lot of good Saturn well, elections right what now. What you would do is where's Saturn? What sign is Saturn in your chart? It's in Leo, which is not great. Okay. So for you, what I would say is rather than making a Saturn talisman, I would do planetary charity or do invocation, do invocation okay, and meditation. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And what you could do is do a divination. So here's the other thing. You can make a talisman of Saturn, but you need to be ready for some negative effects, right? Or positive. It just makes a lot more. It's not like it's going to kill your head's going to blow up. It's more like, look, it's even more unpredictable. Because I had a guy once who got a Jupiter talisman from me and he, he said, oh, the first day I got it, I got a job. It's so awesome. And I looked at his chart, he had Jupiter and Capricorn in fall. So he got a good, a good result out of it. But normally, and I've had people that are like, you know, they're, they're spiritually advanced or whatever that got afflicted planets and said, you know, I had a really difficult time, but it was really helpful on my spiritual journey. But most people are not looking for bad effects when they buy a talisman. So that's why I suggest that. So you could do it like tarot, eaching, whatever, whatever divination you do, pendulum, horary, whatever, and say, well, you know, should I work with Saturn? Um, or you could, like I said, do planetary charity. Now, planetary charity, um, it's another one of my synthetic things. It's from Vedic astrology. And um, what you would do would be to make a donation. You make a vow and um, make a donation to a planet. Like, for example, Saturn, you could give a donation to homeless people. So you say, okay, I promise for the next nine Saturdays that on Saturn hour, Saturn day, Saturday, I'll make a donation to a homeless person. And, um, and then you do that. And that kind of gets them to kind of ease up on you. It improves your relationship with the, with the planet to do that. And um, that's what I tend to. But people like to buy stuff. So planetary charity is about, 
you know, way less popular than talismans because people like to buy things. But that's what I recommend to people that want to work with that. And also you do the, I do a regular planetary invocation every day. So for example, today's Friday, I'm wearing green and that's for Venus. And I'll do a Venus invocation, a short one today. I've been doing that for about f- almost 15 or 20 years every day. And do you incorporate a meditation on the, the planet in, into that practice? No, because I'm doing it every day. Okay, so it's Could already though. kind of built in. Yeah, the more, if you, the more you repeat, the less elaborate it has to be. And if you do it once, you want to do a more elaborate you know, invocation. So you, could, you can kind of jump back and forth. You could say, okay, wow, we got a great Venus election coming up. I'll do this whole invocation. I'll do a whole meditation, and that would, be, that would work really well. Or, you know, like Mansion of the Moon, like Third and Seventh Mansion, which are all good things. Every time the moon comes to the Third and Seventh Mansion, I do an invocation. So that times that one. So it's like once a month. And I do a little more elaborate invocation for that. The daily one, it's every day. And like I said, I've been doing it for 20 years. So it's like a friend you saw every day. You wouldn't have to be as make a big deal out of it. But if you only see him once a year, then you're going to want to make more of a big deal out of it. Well, and, um, what about when you have multiple planets conjunct though? Like for instance, I have Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn all conjunct in Virgo. And it, it's a little confusing to me how how I would work with those planets because of the here's the thing they're not conjoined objectively speaking just in your chart so there's a, one of the most important things is to understand the difference between predictive astrology and other types of astrology so for example if Saturn's your seventh ruler that doesn't make Saturn a love talisman for you I mean Saturn's whole nature doesn't rearrange itself with talismans you're getting the natural effects of the planet what the, what the chart is, it's like repertory theater. There's seven planets and there's 12 different roles they can play, 12 different houses they can go through. And so their strength and weakness at the time of your birth foretells what's going to happen to you, right? But that doesn't mean that Saturn's mad at you and afflicting you personally or sending rays at you necessarily or that, that, that changes his basic nature. But what it does tell you is your relationship with those planets. So in looking at that, you know, certainly with your personality, if I was going to look at your natal chart in terms of personality, I'd be saying, look, all these, these things that they symbolize or they signify are all fused, you know? What did you say, Vir- Jupiter? What was it in Virgo, Jupiter? It's Saturn, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars, all conjunct in Virgo. Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. Oh, that's funky. Because see, you got Mars is well-dignified in Virgo. He's dignified by triplicity. Jupiter is in, um, in detriment, right? And then Saturn is peregrine. So if I was looking at your chart, I'd be like, wow, you're going to express Virgo. All, you've got all the faces of Virgo there. You know what I mean? So you've got the positive Virgo, you've got the negative Virgo, and you've got kind of the Saturn. It was a little heavy kind of thing. So from a personality standpoint, I'd be talking about like, for example, like the Mars. It's a nice placement for Mars because he's dignified. And it's also kind of like, like your temper is probably reasonable tempered. You've got a reasonable amount of energy. You know, Jupiter and Virgo is a little problematic because of the, you know, it's afflicted there. So... You know, then the Virgo, you think of like fussy, you know, kind of touchy, that kind of stuff maybe comes through with that. The overly, you know, precision turns into over-focus on detail or obsessiveness, things like that. So, but that's personality. That's you, right? As far as the planets, I would look and say, okay, well, Jupiter Virgo, he's afflicted. So I probably wouldn't do Jupiter talismans unless I did a divination to make sure it worked. Saturn is paragon. It's fine. Mars, yeah, that's, you know, Mars is, you've got a probably pretty good relationship with Mars, preset so you can do jupiter i mean mars talismans without too much trouble so you see i'm using a different definition of because it's basically essential dignity 
to determine what your preset relationship is with the planet, you know? And that's different from looking at it in terms of what does it predict in terms of your life events or what does it predict in terms of your personality. So we just, again, it's context. What's the context? And then we're going to apply it differently for that. Because the chart is universal. The chart of your birth is the same for everything that happened at that moment, whether it's a horary chart, a mundane chart, your chart, yet you all have these different lives. You know what I mean? So there's that whole, there's a whole different, you've got to particularize it in order to get any meaning out of it. And that's one of the things I was, did this thing today, I was sending out to this inner circle group of mine, and I was sort of bitching about the equivalent of sun sign astrology, where people say, oh, well, now, you know, the Mercury's gone into Leo, so everyone's thinking is now, you know, enthused. I'm like, really? For every 7 billion people on the planet? And the example I was giving was on, on the 10th, I think it was Monday, we had four planets in Scorpio, right? Now, where I'm in Iowa, we had an incredible amount of rain. In fact, we had four and a quarter inches of rain in Iowa City. And that was the day that the Michael, Hurricane Michael hit the coast, right? So obviously, that, that's what it's all about. I said, wait a second, look at the U.S. drought monitor. Half the country is in drought right now, right? So saying, yeah, all these plants in Scorpio equals everyone gets wet, no. In fact, so what people are doing is they're looking at what happened, and then they look at the chart, and then they decide, oh, I'm going to fit that into it. It's not prediction. Because no one would have been able to predict that that hurricane was going to hit there a few six months ago. See what I'm saying? So the universal, the universal chart needs to somehow be particularized for us to get meaning out of it. And that's why we do a horary chart or a natal chart or whatever. But just saying, oh, Mercury's in such and such, that means so-and-so. And that's what everybody does now. And what I'm saying is extremely unpopular. Because very threat. I mean, when I do a horary, I'm putting my ass on the line. No, you're not going to get the job. Well, I got it. Oh, I fucked that one up. But if I just give some vague psychological stuff, right, I'm never wrong. It's particularly if I'm looking backwards. Hitler's chart, oh, wow, look and see 1944. And you'll never be wrong. You'll never put your butt on the line, but it's not prediction. But that's extremely unpopular, even in traditional astrology. So people, they think, I mean, I'm an astrologer, I do this, and all I do is look backwards. I'm shooting fish in a barrel in terms of that. And so we'll see. Hopefully more people will come around to that. But just one of those things of, um, what I was saying about it too is that sun sign stuff is great because you get reassurance and also you have an illusion of control. You know, oh, I know why that happened and this, but it's like, in fact, if you didn't predict it in advance in writing, using a chart, you're fooling yourself. So like I said, as unpopular as that opinion is, it's like, I'm going to, I'm sticking with it. So Chris, what do you think about, um, and I may be misinformed, but in, in Vedic astrology, um, if a planet is afflicted, do they prescribe talismans in that case? Yeah, sometimes they do. I just, like I said, I would not say that mine's the only approach, but what I'm going by is just the sort of the theory being where you have what, you know, the, the, the essential dignity shows your relationship, your preset relationship with them, right? And the experience that I had, for example, personally with, I have Mars is afflicted and I did a Mars, I got a migraine on a Mars talisman. So, and I have had a little bit higher problems with people with afflicted plants in their charts. So that's what I'm saying. But we're putting the, we're putting, you know, we're taking the skeleton here because we don't have anything in our sources telling us how to do this. I mean, yeah. traditional European, it looks like what people would do is they would go to the astrologer saying, I want wealth and say, oh, here's a Jupiter problem. You have people saying, here's my natal chart prescribed me for stuff on it. That's Vedic modern, right? And so I'm in market driven to a certain extent. And I also don't think it's crazy. It makes sense, but it's not what they would, it seems like they would have done in the, in the, in the, in the Renaissance. And, um, you know, they didn't have their natal charts as available to most people. I mean, if you're a king or nobleman, you might. Right. Most 
didn't have that. And so they're just more function-based. And there's tons of talismans for getting rid of scorpions and whatever you can think of, but not so much as far as how you relate to the natal chart. So, so again, that's, um, one of the things of Vedic astrologers that I find kind of amusing is they do something that's not true of anybody, everybody, but they'll have a tendency to say, this is right. This is the only way to do it. And I'm like, eh, I just don't have that same level of, I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying, hey, this is my practice. And since I've been doing this for 20 years and have experience, it's worth listening to, but I certainly wouldn't say that's the only way to fly. And, but that's, their Vedic is within their school and that's what they do. So, I mean, that's cool. But when people start, they'll say, well, my Vedic chart, I'm like, look, I don't know anything about your Vedic <laughs> Now, what do you think about this? Um, so for me, as a, from a magical approach and perspective, you have the planets, which are the material and astral manifestations of the gods who are transcendent to, or pre- who precede the planets. In the same way that, you know, the noetic realm precedes the material, the gods precede the manifest and bring the manifest into existence. So in a sense for me, like invoking the planetary sphere hierarchy of Jupiter is not necessarily going to be identical to invoking the actual, uh, the godhead of Jupiter, so to speak. What, what's your thoughts on that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I really think is, and I've ex- observed in my experience, is that Ficino talks about there being a chain, you know, they don't know the chain of being, but there's individual chains, and that fits in with that chain of correspondence. So he says, from every star, there's a chain, like, so Serpentarius goes to, I think he said Jupiter, and then to, um, you know, like, um, snakes and stuff like that. So there's this, so I've noticed that, that you have these levels of, like, if you invoke Jupiter, you might get a daemon you know, or you probably are getting a spirit that's associated with Jupiter, right? There's all sorts of different levels of what you can get in. For example, I had a guy who was heavily goetic. This was very early on when I was in DC. And he did goetic ritual, and then he, but he did a mansion. And he got this spirit who proceeded to want to trade him like for rum and a chicken to get some stuff. He gave him the rum and the chicken, didn't get what he wanted. He was pissed because he didn't want to get what he wanted. And that's not been my experience, but I don't operate at that level. I'm doing archangelic where I'm aiming at. So I would totally agree with you that there's all sorts of ways you can come in. In Jupiter, it's not a unitary thing, but there's all sorts of different, I don't even know if I want to do hierarchy of higher or lower, but you know what I'm saying? Is that there's all sorts of different ways to interface with that basic Jupiter. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of my perspective. Like a tribe. Too. It's like a tribe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you can get also, what you put in, you get out too. Like you come in and you want stuff, you can get a spirit. They're like, okay, I'm a Jupiter guy. I'll give you this. Because I'm like, oh, you know, St. Jupiter, blah, 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 you know. And that's so that I get effects that are commensurate with what I'm putting into it. Well, no, I, and the thing about the magician that's so cool is that, you know, you're out there doing it and you've had these experiences, right? And so that has to, you know, it's not all in books because here's the two approaches people take. Either it's total fluffy bunny, like new age, anything goes, or it's like, well, I read on page five, you have to use five of these, not four. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't do, like people I was doing a hydro talisman. They said, well, you just got a snake on it. It doesn't have the up on this. I'm like, come on, give me a break. So you, you, you are know? you saying that we don't need lion brains and have? Well, if you want to do lion brains, you need lion brains. What do you think right? about substitutions? Well, you you know, here's the deal. If you kill something, right, there's a lot of energy released from that. Right? But that's to me really heavy bad karma. I'm Buddhist, so I would I don't kill stuff. 
you know? And, um, but there's no question that would be highly effective. And also from a natural magic standpoint, body parts have a real strong sympathetic natural magic. They're super powerful, but you don't need to do that. You can get, you know, you can do the picture says, you know, Jupiter invocation. I was just reading Saturn in the head of a black cat and I have a cat. So I'm just like, ah, you know, but I don't need to kill a cat to get that. Now, if you did obviously be very powerful, but blowback from that is the negative karma that you know from using it. And we'll say, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make a thing about Santeria or whatever, cause they do that, but that's their thing. But I think from a, in the, in our context, it's our, it's like dynamite, right? Mm-hmm. That's powerful, but you better be careful using it. Pull your head off. Okay. And so you had mentioned, this? you had mentioned the arc, arcan, archangelic uh, powers and the angels. Um, what do you think about the, the guardian angel? And how that plays in as, as it relates to like yeah you these. you'd asked about the yeah. perfect nature which I looked up that chapter again that's chapter it's book three chapter six right. man you could spend a lifetime on that one that's one of the most interesting absolutely absolutely theurgic I just was really impressed that you guys were focusing on that I don't know it's interesting people come to me and one of the things I do when I do your natal chart is you can derive names from the chart. So, for example, you, each, you take each degree and turn it into a letter. It could be Arabic or it could be English or it could be, you know, Hebrew. And so then you look at the different points. And the uh, five high-legal points are the sun, the degree of the sun, the degree of the moon, the degree of the ascendant, the part of fortune, then what's called the prenatal syzygy, which is a fancy name for the new or, or full moon previous to your birth. So you look at the degree of those and you look at the letter and that gives you a name. Now, it's interesting because that's really the time Lord. So for that time, date, and location, that's a unique name. And so what's interesting is I had a guy who did the Abram Ellen work and said, you know, I got a name that was very similar. One of the names I got was very similar to that to what you gave me, the natal. So I really like that. But I don't know if there's really, it's the same thing at all. You know what I mean? It's like saying Shango and, and Thor. Are those the same? Like, well, there's some similarities, but I hate to do A equals B equals C equals B. I mean, there's a lot of that on. So uh, I started reading that perfect nature stuff and I was realizing that my mind has been sort of, like I said, I'm on a Buddhist uh, operating system. So a little bit hard. I think when I look at my sense of it was that the perfect nature is consciousness, you know? And so that, cause they talk a lot about like removing the obscurations and confusions and stuff. And then I can see clearly and talk about, you know, using the, the light and so I get the sense that what you're doing is by contacting, because they talk about perfect nature being the union of the spirit of the virtue of the sage and the planet that rules their chart. So that's who you are, though. If you look at your chart, you are a combination of these planets. It's unique. It's like, the, it's like a recipe for you. You know, this much cinnamon and this much saffron and this much, you're this much Jupiter and this much Mercury. That's you. And you are the instantiation of the power. You're talking about trickster. Yes, insofar as your Mercury manifests, Mercury, you manifest the trickster. So um, that's sort of what I feel like. And then ultimately, again, with the Buddhist thing, it's like, yeah, the perfect nature is consciousness is one. You know, so the most perfect wisdom comes from the clearest manifestation of that, which is no self. The less, and, and the more you're there, the less, you know, that's fuzzing up the signal, it's getting in the, the windows dirty. You need to clean it off. So that's kind of how problem being that I'm a little polluted by my, my Buddhist under, you know, so for, here's the problem with the hermetic stuff is that I wanted to have hermetic gnosis, but there's no known living lineage holders. You know? 
So I had to go do Zen and then turn around and then go to non modern non dual to to have a Kensho Kensho experiences. And so I just wasn't able to do in our you know the Westerns were so crazy. We we get rid of our first our pagan religion and then Christianity. We got nothing. You, know, you go to Japan and they still have Shinto. They still have their animistic religion. They still Buddhism. There's there's temples and shrines everywhere in Japan. They're all over the place. Well, and they're mixed too. I mean, the the temple, yeah. the Buddhist temple. There's a Shinto shrine right next to it. That's the folk approach. It's funny because during the Meiji period, they tried to separate them. There was an attempt to use Shinto for the state, right. you know, propaganda purposes and for you know, um, state building and stuff. And that was kind of a shock to people was a real split and um it's kind of coming back to the way it used to be which is that and that the folk level it never they never separated them out really um but um but i thought that perfect nature when i looked at that i'm like wow that's something that deserves you could spend your lifetime and have an entire thing built around at work i just think it's really cool that it's done, it's astrologically timed like they talk about the first uh, moon in the first degree of Aries, and then you got this whole ritual that you go through with it as well. So it's a it's a it's a tantric theurgic, you know, uh, expression of it as opposed to just like a nana yoga, like a pure inquiry. It's more tantric. Yeah, it's a really interesting section. I thought, and a little bit before that, I don't know if it's in the same chapter, but it may be. Um, the author of Picatrix um, was was referencing uh, a sage named Aaron, and he had mentioned that um, he was talking about the planet of of your spirit. Is that the same thing we're talking about here as far as, um, let me take a look if I can, that's on, that's on page 149. Yeah. That's a little earlier chapter. Let me just take a look. Here. I'm just wondering if, if when we're looking at this, the planet that rules over you, if that's what they're talking about. Um, I think it's, I've got the illustrator one, so maybe slightly different pagination. Um, you know, that brings up an interesting issue though, because the ruling planet in the chart, there's all sorts of different varieties of how you come up with that. You know, one way is to look at the ascendant ruler, right? That's the chart ruler. Other way to look is the most dignified planet in the chart. And then there's also the Almutant Figuras, and there's a lot of different ways. That's basically what you do as Almutants. I don't know if you're familiar with Almutants, but that's a more of an Arabic technique. And what you're doing is you're adding up the, 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 the highest planet at a particular degree, right? And then for the Almutant Figuras, you look over a whole variety of points and different things like planetary hour and day and all that sort of stuff. Ibn Ezra has a very complex formula for that. Uh, solar fire that I have has it built in if you want to put it on your, your page. And um, my mutant figurus is Jupiter, whereas my, you know, my, I have Aquarius rising and Saturn rising in Aquarius. So obviously Saturn is super dignified. So Saturn, I think, is probably the most dignified in the chart. Um, Do you factor so, in the hour that you were born? Like it's yeah, there's a complex. Like I said, it's very complex. Okay. And there's, there's a point scale and everything like that. As far as and, the um, mutants, Yeah, I, I saw you. Yeah, mutant figurus, yeah. Okay. I, and my, you know, I've got my blog. If you did Almutant, if you did Renaissance Astrology Almutant Figuris, you get a couple posts that lay it out exactly how to do it. And you have a new video on that as well. Yeah, maybe I do. <laughs> <laughs> I started doing videos. I was like, I finally got a decent microphone and I was like, you know, I really should just start kicking these out. And um, I used to do titling and stuff. I had these, some, these amazing videos that like took you know, it took like a, like a 10 minute video. It took 10 hours to make because you're doing all this like panning and right. all this stuff. And it's like so labor intensive that I was like, I can't even do it anymore. Whereas the talking head stuff like this is like, you can just pop it out and, and put it up. So I decided I really should, you know, what I started doing is I started revising my core, my astrological magic course. 
people have been asking me for, is it on video? Cause it's, you know, it's CD, but I'm like, it's, it's written. And I realized, you know, for like chart stuff, it's amazing. I'll just I'll do a recorder where I'm just recording the screen. So I'll talk and say, okay, here's a chart, blah, 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 blah. And that's really helpful. So I'm really kind of happy about that as an upgrade. I think it's going to increase people's you know, ease of, of learning this difficult material to be able to, and people like video. I mean, it's like, it's not, with, if you have a teacher, it's nice to be able to kind of see what they look like. You know what I mean? And have a little bit more of a sense of a relationship that way. It's nice. But it's not for astrology because I got people saying, is it video? I'm like, if you're not willing to read and write, you shouldn't be a traditional astrologer. It's very, very, you know, literary, literate. You know what I mean? It's not something you can just pick up by watching some videos. Right, right. That's very inefficient. You got to read the sources too. I mean, you've got hundreds of books. You need to be able to read and understand that. And, you know, I have people write essays, which you don't really have to do. If I have Japanese students, I'll give them a break. You know, and I suppose if you hung out with me, you could watch me do stuff, but unless you're going to come to Iowa city and live next door to me, I think, you know, you need, you need to, you know, you'll need to be willing to read and write right. this stuff. Right. So we've been, we've been kind of talking about this throughout the interview. Um, can we get a little bit more in, uh, in detail and specific about your, your practice with Zen and with Shingon Buddhism? Yeah. I sort of mentioned how I got into it because I mean, I was interested in Zen early on. Yeah. It's it's out there. It's one of that's part of our sort of spiritual smorgasbord. You know, oh, there's a lot of stuff. You, you know, and um, the um, but what I found was I got really into Hermetic. I was reading, you know, Hermes Trismegistus, Corpus Hermeticum, all that stuff. But I and they, you know, there's the the discourse on the eighth and the ninth from the Nag Hammadi library, and um, but there's no one to give it. There's no master, and so I turned to Zen. I mean, we have a Zen center down the street from us. That was like, so why did you go to Zen? I'm like, well, there's a Zen center right there. So I started doing intense Zazen and the, the, the order that I got involved with is Soto Zen. And um, they had a monastery not too far away from us, like three hours away up in, in Decorah, Iowa. And they had, it's basically like going to a Japanese monastery, you know, in a lot of ways. So I was doing these um, sessions, like intense 15 hour sits over the weekend. So I did a good amount of that. And, you know, I was doing Zazen um, like 40 minutes in the morning and 40 minutes in the evening for, for a while leading up to the but but again these guys you know to them zen is like you got the right clothes and you do the right ritual i mean that's the way they do in japan. a lot of people in japan there's some people that they're woken up mm-hmm. but there wasn't anybody who like enlightenment was a re- lived reality for them so i started thinking you know this is real it's not fake so i started nosing around as far as people saying yeah i'm enlightened i woke up now so i found i had a teacher his name is fred davis he's in, in south carolina who's a non-dual Modern. I don't know if you're familiar with the modern non-dual, like Eckhart Tolle, people like that, Rupert Spira. So what he is, is he's like, but I take him as a Zen master because Zen is um, uh, a special transmission outside the scriptures, no reliance on words and letters, direct pointing to mind and the attainment of enlightenment. Basically what it is, is a direct pointing. So what Fred does is just walk you through this whole inquiry. You know, it's logical inquiry. And then at that if, you, if you're ready for it at that point, then you can have the experience in yourself. So, um, so that you have that Kensho experience. And so enlightenment is not permanent, instantaneous, 100% you're a Buddha or you're not. It's like you, we're, in a sense, all of us are enlightened now, but we don't know it. We're not aware of it. And so all it is is bringing you to that. But you have to keep bringing yourself back and back and again to that experience. And so... That was, it's sort of like your black belt, 
Because, you know, in, in karate, if you get a black belt, it's like, you know, that's the start. It's like high school, like a GD, you know? So Kensho, your initial Kensho experience is extremely important. You can't go further in your spiritual and that and those paths without it, but it's not the be-all and end-all. So there's a um, Korean Zen um, a master who talks about sun enlightenment and gradual cultivation. That's what you do. You have that enlightenment experience, and then you have a clearing up, long clearing up process after that continues probably the rest of your life. And the Rinzai Zen, which is the other tradition, there's three actually in Japan, their school is actually much more focused on that than Soto. It's kind of ironic that I was doing Soto because they're not really in, in that kind of pattern. That ended up the way I, that I did it. So simultaneously with doing the Zen, um, I, um, William Stick Evers, who's a, I don't know if you know him, he's modern, but he's into astrological magic. He was at a, a a friend who was doing was Japanese who was doing all the stuff in in Japan. So he had me go do a Picatrix workshop, and I'd never been to. I mean, I was interested in Japan, but I never had any really exposure to it. So I went and just just was really taken with Japan. And I met um, a guy named Munhisa Yoshigaka, who's a sort of he's a student of mine, and he started setting it up for me to go. So then I started going. I was going once a year for a while, and. Um, and so I got, I've, been in, I've been to Japan five times. So one of the things that we did when we went early on was we went to Koyasan, Mount Koya, which is the headquarters of the Shingon up in the in mountains uh, south of Kyoto. And um, that was an incredible experience. And um, it's interesting because whenever I go to Japan, I'm always exhausted. And um, the other thing is that I don't know what it is. I, it's a cultural difference is that for some reason, Japanese people don't like to tell you what the schedule is or what you're going to be doing that day. They just do it. And so I was always kind of like, wow, you know, what are we doing today? So I'm exhausted, having no idea what we're doing. And then, um, you know, and so Koyasan, um, I did the Ketching Kanjo, which is, um, it's Kukai, one of his uh, Abhisheka initiations. And um, what he did originally was that he was blindfolded and they took him to a mandala and they dropped a flower. And then the flower falls on whatever, um, you know, um, Buddha, you know, in the mandala, either the, the um, diamond or the womb mandala, you know, which you have, a, you have a connection to. What they actually do in this is that it's interesting because they take you to this temple and you, you're with a bunch of other people and they guide you, walk you through it. And me, they came up to, because I'm obviously Gaijin, they're like, do you, you know, you speak Japanese? I'm like, no. And they're like, okay, well, they did it in English for me. And um, so they set you up so that you drop the flower on uh, Virachana. So that that's not like you have a free. I was thinking that you would have, you know, that would, but they actually have it set up so you make sure you get the flower on the vara. So it's meant to establish a karmic connection with, uh, you know, Varachana Buddha, the Daichi Nayarai, who's the kind of the key Buddha in the Shingon. I was wondering about that. So there is, there is no, um, it, that was kind of set up that that's who the flower would land on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Now I did, I did the fall one, which I, I can't remember if it's the diamond womb or the diamond or the womb mandala, but they do a, a spring and a fall right. of, for those. And um, then I did a Jukai. When I was there, Jukai is you take precepts, um, which I'd already done in Soto Zen. Um, and then um, the, I did it while in Shingon. So, but then the, the advantage that you have is you've got a, a priest. Because if you don't have a priest and you're a lay person, you can't do anything. I mean, so... But what I do like about it is that I've had that basic initiation. I've had that, you know, so I, if I work in the area, then I've, I've got some grounding for it. And that's what, like, that's what I feel. I think that's important. I mean, I think if you just start doing Zen and you have no initiation, then it's like, it's a little disrespectful maybe. I mean, it's, it's okay, but it's, I think it's good to go ahead and get the initiation and, 
and have that. It's like baptism. Sure. It's what it is. It's the most basic stuff. The Shingon, you know, I, I regret in a lot of ways that, again, if I don't have Japanese because, like, for example, they have this Ajakan meditation where you meditate on this Sanskrit letters and they're like, well, sorry, he doesn't speak Japanese, so you can't do it. There's a lot of that. What I was, one of the things that got frustrated about Japan was that I went and I would go on pilgrimage. So I'd either go to Shinto shrines or Buddhist temples. I would do like the heart sutra. That was a trip for the Japanese people because I'd get my heart sutra out and do it in English and they thought that was really cool. And um, I wasn't a tourist, you know, and they're like, oh, they go, Bukyo Des. I mean, he's Buddhist, you know, and which always tripped everybody out. And, um, but you just get to a point where if you don't speak Japanese, you just can't go any further. Oh, there's, there's, there's some really interesting astrological workings in Shingon too, like the uh, Akasha Garba meditation where, you know, they wake up with the morning star and they meditate on Akasha Garba, who's like the, the Bodhisattva, basically Venus. It's just it's amazing how much astrological magic is integrated within that system. Yeah. What you've got is a situation where what's kind of interesting about the astrology there is too is that there was a school of Western astrology in Japan up until like about the 15th century. So because most of the astrology they have now is basically Chinese. It's like the Unmyodo, the Taoist stuff that came over. But the, they, they had over the Silk Road, there was a diffusion of the Western astrology, like the basically Vedic and, the, and, the, and you know, uh, Persian, that sort of stuff that was coming across. It got to China and then went to Japan as well. So there was actually a school that was doing sort of this mixture of and astrological magic and stuff too. So um, um, I'm blanking on the guy. He's a, a guy, an academic who I've been in contact with. He's doing a bunch of writing on it. Um, I wish, hello, just blanking on his name. So he sent me a bunch of articles and was working on stuff. It's really cool. So, but there's a there's a lot of really cool astrological magic built into it. And um, I would wish to have an opportunity. I went like the last time I went, we had a, uh, a Yamabushi, um, which is kind of like an interesting syncretistic combination of Shinto and Buddhism. Shug and they were sort of Shugendo. They were sort of forced into um, being Tendai or Shingon during the Meiji period, and now they're sort of separating out. But I, and they did a, uh, a Homa ritual, which is like the Shingon. So we go to this temple. Of course, it's freezing cold. And um, he does this, you know, he stacks up all the sticks and burns them right in front of us. The smoke, and, you know, he's doing all this, initiating all this stuff. And I got this gigantic Ofuda from him. It was pretty cool. Usually Ofudas are about this bit, you know, like about six inches. He got this, like, 13-inch Ofuda. It's really big Ofuda from the Yamabushi guy. But, um, of course, I had no idea what was going on, what was going to happen, or what was, what was going on. So it was classic Japanese sort of situation. Um, but that, I, I've gotten to do an amazing amount of stuff. Like what my Japanese friends would do for me is what, when, when we would go, we'd usually get set up to do some special ceremonies. So instead of just going to the temple, they would have a special ceremony that they would do. Which, you know, And I got to do a lot of really cool stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff, and it was really amazing. But, like I said, you get to a certain point and there's only so far you can go with it. I've and, found that, yeah, the language is a huge barrier um, with, with the Shingon, at least. Um, it's funny, cause you, were, you were teaching astrology um, in Japan, and we had talked to, a few months back, uh, Robert Place, and he goes to China. Oh, yeah. He goes to China to teach tarot. And it's just funny that, the, that you guys are, are both going to the East to teach the Western stuff. And he's... They love it. He, I think he's doing some of the artwork for your new book on the fixed stars too. Yeah. Well, he, you know, a while ago, cause I had another artist who Nigel Jackson, who like, you know, he, he's, he's amazing stuff, but he's very much, 
you know, he, he's not a commercial artist, really. He does it stuff he's inspired to do. And he kind of felt like he moved on to doing this more Christian mystical stuff. So he was less, though recently he actually did some more. He'd finish up the fixed stars for me. So I have a mix between Nigel Jackson and Robert Place. So Robert Place did a bunch of artwork for me um, a while ago. And so that's one of the things he did was some of the fixed stars. So for the 15, there's a, a manuscript of fixed stars called Hermes on the 15 fixed stars. And I finally have gotten images um, both by either Nigel Jackson or Robert Place for all 15 of those fixed stars. So that's another thing I'll mention. I've got a new book that's going to come out. On, it's called Fixed Star Constellation, Sign and Constellation Magic. And so, but I've been re- delaying it because I wanted to do integrate it into my astrological magic course. And then to do that, I had to upgrade the magic. So it's sort of, you know, complicated. There are all the ducks in a row with that stuff. But I, I'm hoping to get that book out by the end of the year. Um, and then it'll be a paperback and hardcover versions of it. It's done. And the images, color in the color hardcover, for example, is color images of all the 15 fixed stars, all the constellations, and all the signs, along with how to basically do the, do the, do the um, talismans for the, those. And the sign is interesting, too, because, you know, people know they're like sun sign or whatever. Most of the sign uh, magic is uh, health-related, you know, relating to the zodiacal man, like Aries is your head and Taurus is your neck and stuff. And um, so... Um, I did some in, some interesting stuff as far as like making sign talismans, so that was kind of interesting to work with that. So, um, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of excited about getting the book out. So, can you talk a little bit because we're going to have to wrap up here soon? But can you talk a little bit about the fixed stars and and the relationship with the planets and how how we can work with the fixed stars because they do they 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 are in the hierarchy of things they are above the the planets. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that. Um, in uh, Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, he lists the fixed stars and he says they're like, you know, like for example, he said the fixed stars in Virgo are like Mars and, you know, whatever, Venus or something like that. That has come to the misconception that the planets rule the fixed stars. Whereas just as you said, in the hierarchy of, of things, since they're in a higher sphere, they're actually more powerful than the planets. But the relationship is, is a little unclear as far as what's the fixed star you know, rules a planet or whatever. I, I, that's not, I'm not sure if that's, now Ficino, like I said, talks about these chains, but um, it's, there's almost sort of a separate system. So they're in the geocentric astrology and geocentric astronomy, they're in the eighth sphere. So you have, you have the seven spheres of the planets and then the next spheres of the fixed stars um, or the, you know, that can be a little bit changed around. So because they're so far away from us, that's why we use the moon in elections to be able to, because the moon is sort of the intermediary you know, she brings all the influences of the planets to us, but particularly the fixed stars. But for fixed star election, for example, Spica, I say Spica, Nigel from England says Spica, because um, I'm from the Midwest. So you have Spica rising, which is, I think, 24 Libra, or culminating, and then the moon would be applying to a conjunction or a sextile or trine. Conjunction is best, but you can use sextile or trine as well. So that moon would then contact that and bring that energy in. So that's the basic election for those uh, fixed stars. Each of the 15 fixed stars in the Hermes manuscript is great because it has an image, it has a description of what it does, it has the like stone and, and, and planet rules, you can use that for incense, um, and then it has a sigil. So it gives you really complete information in terms of like how do you work with these for, for you know, now if say Rigel or something, I don't know. I mean, what does it do? How do you contact it? What, what does a sigil look like? One I did recently is Fomohat, which is really interesting. Fomohat is the mouth of the southern fish. And um, I actually have Fomalhaut conjunct a significant, you know, factor in my charts. I've kind of really felt like I've had a connection with that star. 
Fomahot is also, I think it's modern, but I like it nevertheless. It's talking about the four archangels, the four watchers. And so they're associated with the four archangels, Raphael, Uriel, and Gabriel with four fixed stars. So Gabriel is associated with Fomohot. So with that, I've, I really, that's the one innovation I made in 20 years. I did this fixed star talisman for Fomohot. And I, I basically came up with a sigil that looks sort of like a fish. It just sort of came to me as far as a sigil. And um, we had Gabriel to invoke and Fomohot. And, you know, the effects are kind of, Lily talks about the effects in a chart. So, and I had a sense from my own experience. So that was kind of like, 20 years, and then I was willing to do some innovation. That's what I would recommend. So if you have 15 minutes after you've come into it, you start innovating, probably not. But at the same time, you don't want to be stuck with, okay, well, they did in 1647, we can never do anything other than that. So they, again, finding that balance between that is useful. But the Fomohot was really exciting and interesting to do. The other thing I'm working with is uh, Muhammad Ajmal in Pakistan, who is a student of mine, but also has a tremendous background in sort of um, – Islamic magic, like the, we're now working on the Shams al-Marif, which is the son of wisdom, which is even more famous and popular than the Picatrix in, in the Arabic-speaking countries. And so it has a lot of magic squares and Quranic magic and Arabic letter magic, and, um, but uses astrological timing. So that's been kind of the recent thing. It's been, because I'm a Sufi as well. Before I was a Buddhist, I had a Sufi initiation. So it's kind of bringing that back um, up. That's been kind of exciting to do that as well. So, Very cool. God, we could talk, you could see we could talk for like 15 years about any one of these topics. Right. But I really appreciate the chance to, to talk to you guys. And you both are like, I mean, Janice had to drop out, but you guys are clearly, it's amazing. What's cool about doing this in 2018 versus 1998 is you guys have all this background and you're like so much more advanced, you know, than, you know, what I previously people would just have this dumb incomprehension about stuff, whereas you guys really have a, pretty deep, deep grounding in it. And um, I just think that's so cool that people are so advanced. You know, there's enough people that are interested in it and has put the time and effort in learning the stuff that, um, you know, your colleagues really not. Well, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible f- without guys like you who really pioneered and trailblazed and, and stuck their neck out and, and did something that ne- wasn't necessarily popular. And, and you're still not, you know, in everyone's good graces, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we could never be at the level we're at without guys like you. So, Well, I really appreciate that. And like I said, though, it's what's cool about it is, you know, sort of nice for the ego to be, oh, I'm the best, but it's cooler for the, the whole revival of it. What I really like about it, probably the most important thing I've done, and Picatrix was useful, but there's going to be other translations, having students and starting these lineages, you know, because I have the practical knowledge as well as the theoretical knowledge, it's a lot easier to learn for me, you know. And also just then my students can teach and do their own thing and everything like that. So starting up these lineages to keep this alive, I think is probably the most useful thing that I've, I've done of, of everything. And um, I'm just so excited. Like I said, you know, to have colleagues is really the best thing of all. And I'm really, I'm so excited that so many people are interested in astrological magic and taking it so seriously. And um, what I'm, what's also exciting is that I'm sure there's all sorts of variations in what people do, and that's really great. I mean, the traditional is nice because you can drink from that spring, right. but my expectation is people will take that and then do all sorts of amazing things with it. You know, that I don't want to say, oh, this is the only way to do it, and you have to do it my way or, or the highway. It's good to try it. That's why I say to my students, I say, try it my way, see how I do it, and then when you're done, you can decide whether you want to do that or not, you know? But if you're going to learn this, it's good to get on the same page. And, um, you know, you sort of take it on faith 
you know, it's like if you go to the Lord of the Rings, you don't get up and say, there's no elves, there's no, you know, there's no dwarves. You just kind of enter into right. it, right? And then suspend disbelief and see where that goes. And um, so I think that's a really, that's a really exciting, good approach. Well, Chris, I always hate ending these conversations, but um, where can people find you? And yeah. when when so, coming out? Yeah. So like I said, um, you know, Renaissance Astrology, if you Google search that, you get me. Um, and then you can see, you know, courses, towels. We have a huge, we're starting to get a really crazy, crazy large inventory again of talismans. Um, uh, courses, uh, readings, all that sort of stuff. You can re- find out about that. But I'm hoping to get the book out. Like I said, I got to get the Astrological Magic upgrade finished, but hopefully by the end of the year. Because I also have to do a, a change my Mansion of the Moon book because the ephemeris run out. It's like, I think like 12 years or something since I wrote it. So I'm like, oh my God, I know how to do a new, so I just, I've done a new ephemeris. So I've got it all ready to go. So I need to get that. That'll have to be launched as well. And um, I think also the end of the year is when the new Picatrixes are coming out. But I think that's really auspicious too. And like I said, I really, I'm really happy about the, um, the different versions. I think it'll be awesome. Everyone should probably buy all three or however many there are. And each one is probably going to be good for different things. We're, our focus has always been for practitioners. So that's where we're going to continue to make sure it's useful for Also, I mean, it'd be awesome to have an academic version. I think there's also going to be an Arabic, which will be interesting to see as well. None of them is best. All of them are good for different purposes. And I'm really happy that there's such a variety of people studying and working in, in, in this area. Awesome. Well, and I can speak from firsthand experience about your classes. I took one of your classes and I enjoyed it immensely. And the information was fantastic. And I learned a lot, so um, I would highly recommend it to anyone out there who's interested in this in this subject matter. Um, Chris, it, awesome. yeah, it was great talking to you. And um, Janice dropped off, but uh, on behalf of both of us, we really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thank you, Chris. Okay, episode number ten is all wrapped up. Thank you again to Mr. Warnock for your time and generosity. We really appreciate it, and we are looking forward to having Chris back on the show soon. Again, you can find out everything about what he does at renaissanceastrology.com. There, like I had mentioned earlier, Chris does electional astrology, he does natal charts, horary work, as well as his classes. So they've got the full Astrological Magic course, as well as some mini-classes like the Planetary Magic and Mansions of the Moon courses. So definitely check that out as well. As far as us, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all the other places that you find podcasts. Please do us a favor and give us a rating. We'd like to get uh, moved up the charts a little bit so we can get out to more people, which would be cool. So we would appreciate that. You can also find us on YouTube, of course, and on Facebook, so you can give us a like over there and find out what we are up to and when the shows are dropping. So that is about it. We do have some great shows coming up that I think everyone will like. I know I'm looking forward to them, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.